Imagine for a moment you're a young head coach and you are matched up with a coach that you have respected and known since you were a kid. And oh, by the way, he is going for his 1,000th win against you. That is what today's episode is all about. But before we get to that, please visit teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball for incredible content from Coach Steve Collins. Again, teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball. And if you haven't done so already, check out the Competitive Mindset Podcast from our former guest, Billy Kegler. Catch him on social media at Competitive Pod. Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here on the Greatest Games Podcast. As always, a chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest game. As always, it can be their time as a college coach, a high school coach, a JV coach, a B-team coach, or even if they beat a Naismith Hall of Famer for their greatest win. It could it could be that, it, you know, and Chris. It, uh, wait, a Naismith Hall of Famer and former podcast guest. Sorry. That's right. We, we're not sure which one is the greatest honor. I mean, I think I, I would uh, think lean towards the latter, of course. Uh, but, you know, uh, for our anniversary episodes, we, we like to bring out the big guns. You know, we go back to episode 50, we have Eddie Fogler, episode 75, Dave Odom, episode 100, Coach George Glimp. And you talk about, so we have a gentleman today that beat a Naismith Hall of Famer, as you mentioned, and he also hails from, well, he's in Wilmington, Delaware. He was hired as a 29-year-old to be the head coach at Wilmington University in Delaware. Coach Dan Burke, welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast. Brian, Chris, thanks so much for having me on. I'm uh, really excited. I'm, I'm a fan of the podcast, listened to a few of them. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here and definitely humbled to be mentioned with those guys you mentioned. I, I don't think I belong with those guys, but, but I'll take it. <laughs> and we will get to the Hall of Famer. We're really teasing the heck out of this one, Brian. We will <laughs> I think it's we will great. get to former. I think we only have one former guest who's in the Naismith Hall of Fame. So, well, I mean, our, our, our avid listeners will know. And I, I think another just uh, resume builder for Coach Burke is that he is good friends with episode 78's Joe Scott of Caldwell University, one of the greatest guys of all time. <laughs> Coach Burke, why don't you take us, Brian mentioned uh, that you were hired very young to be a head coach, but why don't you just kind of take us through your coaching journey quickly and, and how you got to where you are now as the head coach at Wilmington? Sure. So I played my college basketball at Chestnut Hill College in Philadelphia. Um, at the time, it was Division Three. Then my senior year, they bumped up to Division Two. Um, so very average player. Um, but uh, I look at my career as like a four-year-long job interview because I was never late, you know, always did the right thing. And um, a job opened up on the staff right when I graduated. So Jesse Balser, who I played for, you know, he, he mentioned it to me. He knew I wanted to get into coaching. He offered me the spot and I took it. So I was really lucky to have that opportunity and land as a D2 assistant at 23, right when I graduated. So I was there for uh, four years. We had some really good success. Then I jumped to uh, Camden County College in New Jersey for one year, coached under Lou Abatista. Um, great coach, great guy, uh, really like a father figure to me, as is Jesse. Um, and then after one year with Lou, I got the job at Wilmington, um, which is in the same conference as Chestnut Hill. So I think it helped to have the uh, you know, familiarity and some relationships. And um, my wife was actually the head coach at Goldie Beacom in the conference at the time, and she still is. 
So I think all those things help to, you know, kind of allow me to have that opportunity. So coach, what was it like? Uh, it's fascinating. It sounds like you were an assistant for six years and then you get a, a head job. This is in the uh, 2010 range. So how did you, I know you mentioned it as a player, you showed up on time and you got that job. You, 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 you grew where you were planted in a, in a way to, to, to use that cliche, but was social media involved? Was you, were you out there just, I'm going to be a head coach one day, or did it just happen? Uh, and I'm asking this for a, a reason. I talked to a, a guy that I used to work with that he just, he's, he's just, he's just dying to be a college coach and it's just not really happening. He's just trying so hard, trying so hard. So what was that journey really like for you to then, become a head coach at 29 so social media really did not play a part in in my getting into college coaching um you know just to backtrack a little bit from the time I can remember you know going back when I was two or three four years old I was just in love with basketball um my grandfather played at Villanova so um I think I was actually in the as a six-month-old I was in the first game at their the pavilion um which is the current Finneran um uh, thinner and pavilion, I guess they call it. Um, so I was actually there, you know, as an infant and, um, he had season tickets all through probably my twenties. So I was just in love with the game, exposed to the game. Um, and I knew that I probably wasn't going to be a super high level level player. So, uh, coaching was going to be my ticket to stay involved and, um, thought I always thought like a coach as a player. So it, it was an easy decision to get into coaching. And then, uh, social media started to become um, more widely used as I was coaching. But by then, I think I, I kind of had a solid network and built some relationships uh, to where I don't think that that was as much a part in my obtaining a job as it might be now, which I, I do feel like it is now. And it's it does, just like with the players we recruit, there's a lot of pressure. You know, there's a lot of influence. You try to compare yourself to other people. But, um, you know, you mentioned grow your planet, run your own race. All those cliches are really applicable, you know, because I think you can fall into that trap of just feeling like you're not doing enough and you're not getting there quick enough. Well, Coach, you said you kind of thought as coaching as sort of where you were going to fit in the world of basketball because of uh, you, know, you didn't really feel like you were going to be a high level player. So and you talked about a four year job interview at Chestnut Hill. Did you spend time with any of the, the head coach, the assistant coaches kind of already starting to ask questions that would help you in coaching when you were a player? My senior year, I felt like that that did happen um, because I, I mentioned we made the jump from D3 to D2. So, um, you know, I was definitely a role player as a D3 player, um, played <laughs> behind a couple of really, really good guys, like <laughs> big time players that probably shouldn't have been playing D3. So when they graduated, I'm looking forward, like, yeah, this is my shot. This is my opportunity. And then boom, now we're going D2. So I'm like, oh my, my goodness, like, what, what does this mean? So uh, Coach Bowser actually had a conversation with me before the season and just said, look, um, you know, I understand the predicament you're in. I know, I think that if we were still D3, I think we could really use you, but, you know, kind of have these young guys that are scholarship level guys take their lumps the first year and then by their second, third year, they'll be able to, um, you know, really shine, which is what happened. And, um, you know, I think that's when we really started to build a relationship where I would ask him questions. He would involve me in certain, not decisions, but certain um, maybe decision-making process, let's say, uh, fill me in on some things that other 
players might not have been filled in on. So I think uh, that's a great question. I hadn't really thought about it, but I think my senior year is when that started to happen. So, Coach, you talk about maintaining balance, you know, and for, for those a little peek behind the curtain here, when we book guests, we ask you all sorts of questions, your social security number, nobody will do all that, but uh, we ask you some things that you would like to talk about, and you talk about maintaining balance and a perspective as a young head coach, and you're married to, as you mentioned before, a D2 head women's coach. So talk about maintaining that balance in the just the hustle and bustle and breakneck speed that is college basketball. Well, it's definitely a loaded, uh, loaded question in my mind, kind of went different, different directions. Um, the first thing I thought of was, um, you mentioned the, the young man that you know that just wants to be a college coach and feels like it's not happening fast enough. I think that um, maintaining perspective and balance is very important and, and just doing the best job that you can where you are. And um, also while, while doing that, also developing relationships, uh, genuine relationships, I should say, not trying to use people to get ahead or climb a ladder, but developing genuine relationships that can blossom and maybe provide opportunities for you. Um, and then with the family, you know, it's um, – definitely um, challenging at times, but it's also something that we're used to. My wife and I were also assistant coaches in the same league. She was at Holy Family. I was at Chestnut Hill. So we were used at that time, we were used to balancing our schedules and seeing each other when we could. But now it's obviously different because we have two young children. So, um, you know, making sure we stagger our practice times and we have a a plan for for when we are, um, you know, (laughs) we're going to see each other and take care of our kids. That's very important. Um, but, it, but it's also doing things for a reason as a coach. You know, I think as a coach, we all want to work harder than everybody. We all want to, you know, have that reputation of being a worker. But I think sometimes we get on autopilot and we do things just because we think we're supposed to. You know, like is, is being in a gym on a weekend for 15 hours going to be any more productive than being there for a solid eight hours where you can – get done what you have to get done and then also go see your family. So, you know, I, I just think that that's important to me. Um, I, I can't tell anybody else how to do their job, but I just feel like for me that works where I feel like I'm doing my job, but at the same time, I'm not losing perspective on what's really important in, in life. Uh, I have two, two quick stories to bring up on that. I think I've told one of them on the, on the air. Uh, I interviewed for a job at Temple University with their football program years ago when Al Golden was the football coach. He just gotten the job there. And he said, listen, we're going to work plenty of days where we work long hours. He goes, but on days we're not working long hours. He goes, I don't like people who guard their desk. He says, so if there's nothing to do, go home. <laughs> I think that's what you're talking about, about maintaining that balance. Plenty of people like to say they were in the office for 15 hours. Yeah, but what did you really do? Absolutely. It's also like what we tell our players working out, you know, we'll, we'll, yeah. we want our players for the, for five hours in a gym, just saying they're in a gym, or do we want them in there for 60 to 90 minutes, getting good quality work in and then going and, and maintaining balance in their life because then they're going to be happier doing their job. And they're not going to feel like it's a, it's a chore or um, something that's just bogging them down. So I think that's, that's great. That's a great example, Chris. And the other coach that had a great perspective on it was the great Steve Spurrier. And when he was at Florida and he first hired Bob Stoops, uh, Stoops remembers that one weekend in June or one week in June, Stoops was like, or Spurrier said, come on down, bring your family. 
down to our beach house. And Supes was like, well, we got to call recruits. We got to watch film. And, and Spurrier said, no, we don't. We can go to the beach for a week. It's okay. And he said they were, they were uh, like boogie boarding. Bob Stoops said, I remember I'm boogie boarding with Steve Spurrier. I just got in the job. And he looks at me and says, can you believe the other coaches in the office right now calling people, like calling recruits and worried about that? And he goes, we're out having a good time with our families. And it certainly didn't affect, you know, Coach Spurrier's success. Absolutely. Yep. All right, Brian. Um, I've, I've been looking up stuff on information on Wilmington and information on Chestnut Hill, and I just don't have much for a trivia question. Okay. Uh, but I'm going to come up with one anyway. Oh, wonderful. Uh, so well, I was looking at famous alumni, uh, not, you know, I'm, I'm sure plenty of good people, but no one put it this way, Brian, I'd never heard of any of the people you can imagine. Yeah. That. Okay. That's so uh, Wilmington that's, uh, university coach Burke. What is the nickname of your sports teams? I know that one. We're the Wildcats. The Wildcats. A popular yes, nickname. Uh, uh, Coach Burke, don't give this one away. Brian, what is the name of the mascot, the actual mascot? Is it Willie the Wildcat, Wiley D. Wildcat, Walter the Wildcat, or Wildcat Willie? Oh, man. So you, right when you said that, I, I was thinking it's got to be Willie the Wildcat. But now, I mean, it's either A or D. I'm going to go A. I'm going to go with my gut. It's Wiley D. Wildcat. Oh, man. <laughs> Standing six foot five, 220 pounds. Yep. Wiley D. Wildcat. Did we get him to play power forward? Whoa. whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Some years we need him. Coach, let me, I want to ask you a question. Uh, do either of your kids have coaching jobs yet? They think they're in charge of us. I'll tell you that. Um, but they don't, they don't have official you job. You go out on the playground and one of them's got kids and they're moving them around. You and your wife must be proud. <laughs> Not yet. My, my four-year-old just got in, into Space Jam. So, so I'm, I'm proud of that. So that's, she's, on, she's on track. She's on the way. That's great. That's great. Well, before we get to the greatest game, I want to tag something that y'all were just talking about too, that, that last answer um, about really just taking care of yourselves. And I was in a, a training five or six years ago and I listened to a guy named Sam Glenn and I'm trying to publicize this guy. He probably doesn't need it anymore, but I think he was just kind of an up and coming motivational speaker that does art on stage while he's speaking. And uh, so Sam Glenn.com as Glenn with two ends. And he talked about during that speech, like, it's up to us to get, to light our own lighthouse, whether it's coaching, whether it's for me as an AD, Chris is a teacher and a coach, that lighthouse is going to get burned out. There's going to be a storm that's going to come through and knock that light out, but we got to, we got to light our own lighthouse. And he talked about that. So samglenn.com, I highly recommend. He's got some great stuff out there on YouTube as well. So getting to now our greatest game, we've teased the absolute heck out of it. So, Coach Burke, take us in the arena. Take us in the gym. February the 4th, 2015, what happened? Yeah, so um, February, I, th I think I think I told you the 4th. I believe it was the 3rd. Um, but, yeah, February 3rd, 2015, we, uh, we're on the schedule to play at Philadelphia University, which is now Jefferson, um, against the great Herb McGee, who was going for his 1,000th win in his career. Um, and just to give you a little backstory. So that was my first year coaching as a head coach. Uh, we, we started off really rough. We were on seven, got our first win eight games into the year, ran off three in a row, went on another losing streak. But right before that Philly U game, we had won three in a row. So we were feeling good. 
we had a uh, senior laden team, which I think really helped. Um, we had six seniors that year who were very, you know, they, they got more mature as the year went on. And, you know, I think they really embraced the opportunity to play on that stage. But uh, I remember, so the game before that, we had just won a game, a Saturday game at Concordia in New York. And uh, we had just seen the final score of the Philly U game. So I let our guys know, you know, this is great. We won this game and let's get ready because we're, we're going to be on the big stage um, you now coming up. I think it was a Tuesday night, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday night. So, but it was wild, you know, at our games, you really don't have to uh, pay admission or get tickets. You know, you just kind of go in and some teams have admission, some teams don't, but for this game, you had to get tickets. And um, we all have uh, the CACC plays women, men, double headers. So the women play at six, we play at eight. And uh, there was a line before the women's game, you know, so half hour before the women's game, the place was already sold out. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned anybody in the Philly hoop scene, big five coaches, retired coaches, media, ESPN was there. It was just a wild atmosphere that, um, that we were really excited to be in. And what happened? <laughs> I didn't want to keep talking, so I, I didn't know if. Uh, well, no. So, all right. So, you're 992 wins short of Herb McGee going. Yeah. Into the game, right. Yeah. About nine. Okay. So, it's an even matchup. No. <laughs> but to talk a little bit about that, another another reason that this game meant so much to me is the respect that I have for Coach McGee, because um, like any any kid that grows up in the Philadelphia area that plays basketball. I probably saw Coach McGee talk about shooting at least two or three times per summer from the time I was eight to the time that I entered college. I mean, the guy's a legend. Um, every, everybody knows, you know, how, how much he wins and how great his program is. But in this area, you know, he, he's, he's the shot doctor as well. I don't know if he's known like that around the country, but he, he's an authority on how to shoot a basketball. And a lot of people my age learn how to shoot a basketball from him. So to be on that stage against him in particular was, was a little bit surreal. So uh, we go into the game and um, we come out pretty strong. Um, definitely not intimidated. Got a lot of offensive rebounds, putbacks, and uh, I believe we went into the half up. Um, they made a run in the second half. And um, I think we got down eight with about eight minutes left, um, maybe a little bit less than that. But then um, we had a guy who was a sophomore at the time not, named Tyre Ponzo Meek, who ended up by his senior year being player of the year in the conference. And I think this was really his coming out party. He ended up that game with 24 points and uh, made a few really big shots. And, um, you know, but it was so poetic because to end the game, they had sideline out of bounds right in front of their bench, 3.4 on the clock, I believe. And um, Coach McGee, we were up, we were up two. So we won the game 72-70. So we were up two. So Coach McGee draws up a play, calls timeout. They come out, they run this great set. They run a flare flare action set to get their best shooter, Nick Schlitzer, a wide open three. It was right on line. It was one of those times where you just feel like the ball's in the air for 10, 20 seconds. It was if I remove myself from being the coach of the opposing team it would have been really cool to see them win that game like that because it just would have been so poetic because it would have been, you know, he's so known for his great sets and um, execution. So if they would have won the thousandth game on that play, 
it would just been so poetic. But uh, lucky for us, uh, it went off the back iron. And I, I just remember the, the the feeling that we had after we won. It was just it was really, really neat. And um, I, I actually think it propelled us to some success later in that year because we, we ended up going on the road to Dominican, uh, winning the first playoff game in the history of the school. And then we beat Holy Family um, in, the, in the conference semifinals that year. And Holy Family was just an unreal team. And then we ended up losing to Philly U on that same court in the championship, but it was a really good game. So I think that that win gave us confidence to have those wins and compete at that level later, later in the year. All right, Brian, I have a follow-up trivia question for you. Nope, nope, not allowed. Next, nope. but, oh, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Coach just mentioned Dominican University, which is right up here in uh, New York State, and about 25, 30 minutes from where I live, which you, you've been in the area before. What right. de Blasio family member attended Dominican University? Got to be care. No. Nope. Jessica uh, de Blasio, Keith's wife. Uh, so it's a little bit of a trick question. A little bit of a it, trick. <laughs> very trick question i'm highly upset now coach i do have a question for you so you knew philadelphia had lost uh you said you told your guys the night you know whatever that you forgot the score that night so you knew you were going to be going into this this cauldron like you said of you know i'm sure the women's players were like we're playing in front of a sold out crowd it's unbelievable i remember i was going to coach a championship game uh a year a couple years ago and and I was talking to my best friend on the phone the night before, and I said, oh, I've got my suit out ready for the game. And he said, suit? And I said, yeah. He goes, you haven't worn a suit all year. I go, yeah, I always have a shirt and tie. And he goes, yeah, but you've never worn a suit. And I said, okay. He goes, don't change it now. He goes, you show up in a suit, the kids are going to go, oh, wait a minute, why is coach in a suit? So what did you do to try to keep that preparation as normal as possible going into that environment? I don't recall that we did anything different. Um, I think we just went in at, and Philly U slash Jefferson is a team that you, there's so much to prepare for because they run so much and they do that so well that I think we were so occupied actually preparing for what they do on the court that I don't know if we had time to worry about any of that other stuff. Um, I don't know if the players themselves away from the court if they were talking about it or if they were really excited about it, I don't even know if they understood the gravity of it. Like we showed up and ESPN was there and every local news station was there. And, you know, you name the big five coach that wasn't playing that night. They were there. So I, I don't know if, um, and, and it's probably a good thing. I don't know if the players understood the gravity of what we were going into until we got there. And then they get there and they're like, Oh man, we're going to take adva advantage of this opportunity. Um, so we didn't do anything different. And, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if the players really comprehended it before we got there. Well, maybe that's a good thing. That's <laughs> I think it was, I think it was. So coach, we had, and obviously we were teasing it earlier. We had episode 92 coach McGee and what a, I mean, what a great guy. And, you know, I'm a South Carolina born and bred guy. Uh, so I didn't grow up with him being the shot doctor as, as you did. Um, but I was floored by, Yes, he wins a lot of games. He's one of five college basketball coaches to win a thousand games, I believe. Join him, Mike Shusevsky. I mean, just you know, he's he's just an absolute legend when it comes to wins. But I remember Chris asking him a question. There was one year that he went like 
seven and 18 or something like that. And Chris was joking with him. He's like, what happened? You know, what happened? And he just flat out said, you know what? We had to get rid of a couple of kids. They didn't li- live up to our, right. our standards. So, um, what's it like growing up? Um, what what's I guess, what's your perspective of Herb McGee as a coach? Obviously everybody knows about the wins, but uh, now that you're coaching, uh, what's your perspective of him as a coach and as a man in the program that he's, as a, that he's built? So I think as a coach, just the consistency, um, he, he has a true program where um, you can tell that the older guys teach the younger guys what, how to do things. You know, I, I, can't, I can't see a younger guy come in and try to go against the program and none of the older guys say, hey, no, 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 we don't do that here. So I think that that shows up in how they play. And I think just the precision, the execution that they – display on a yearly basis is it's just amazing to watch and amazing to scout against um i know last year uh, so we played them three times first time um we we kind of you know we, we switched a lot and we did a lot of different things and almost caught them by surprise we lost in overtime then the second time we played them they they adjusted to everything we did i mean they just had a counter for everything that we wanted to do they had a counter for it and then they just blow our doors off when we played them in the conference semifinals. So I, I think the way that they adjust, the way that he obviously teaches his guys in practice to prepare for what they see on the floor um, is, is really remarkable and something for, for me as a young coach to learn from. But then as a man, the way they conduct themselves, they don't, they don't talk trash. They don't do anything that you know the, a team should not do. And I think that that's a reflection of – a uh, direct reflection of the person that's in charge of the program. So um, couldn't, couldn't have more respect for, um, you know, what, what he does and, and the program that they have. Yeah. That's, and that's a great story. Brian told he, he went right back. I think it was like 1976 and he remembered immediately yeah. and was like, yep, we had, there were a couple of guys that we had to get rid of and that, you know, they were good players, but they weren't doing the right thing. And I think we all aspire to get our program to that level that you're talking about where the older uh, athletes, student athletes, you know, instill in the younger students so that, the, the, you know, they sort of coach themselves. I mean, obviously in big time college basketball, you see that with, you know, the UNCs and the Dukes, uh, you know, obviously UNC under coach Smith and then coach Williams and Duke all this time under coach Krzyzewski, you know, you see uh, that, that being filtered down. And obviously Herb McGee's done that with his 53 years. And I'm what? sure, you know, you, you want to, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know your program that well, but I know you want to get to that level as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if you look at who wins, you know, who, who wins the national championship every year, uh, Baylor, Virginia, Villanova, North Carolina, they're not one and done factories. And there, there's, no. I don't think there's anything wrong with the one and done thing, but I think the proof's in the pudding that I think the last one and done team that won it was Duke. And what was it, 14 or 15? Yeah. Uh, they, had, they had Okafor and Justice Winslow and Tyus Jones. Um, so I, I say that to say I think that's the model for what succeeds even at the highest level, right? You can have yeah. some, some really exciting play and very competitive play, but ultimately um, it seems like culture wins. I hate I, – I feel so ridiculous saying that, <laughs> but I think it's – I, no, think well, it, I, I think you, you yeah, say, right? I, I mean, there's true. no better example than, than Virginia and what happened yeah. to them. You know, they had had some tournament failures and then had the ultimate tournament failure. And then to come, you know, just obviously the consistency in that program with Tony Bennett is there year after year. And, and I'm, Jay Wright's the same way at Villanova. You know, 
there was a lot of times where he was maybe thought of as maybe underachieving. And now he's won two national titles and all of a sudden he's not underachieving anymore, but his program has been consistent for the 20 years he's been at Villanova. Right. And it's not easy to get to, you know, it's, it's, um, it takes, it takes time. And I think I'm, I've learned that I'm learning that. Um, and I think as a coach, you learn something every year that, you know, you can, you can make your, your program better. Um, and then we didn't play at all last year. So I, I've just done a lot of thinking and, you know, analyzing and everything like how, how can we kind of get back on track to where we were a few years ago? And, you know, I think that's what it is. I think it's just finding, finding those, those guys that, that are just going to recycle and, and buy into exactly your, your vision for a successful program. Well, I know Chris has the final question here, but I want to jump in real quick. I got another name for everybody, Milt Louder. He is the sports psychologist for Clemson football. Now, I go way back with Milt uh, from from Sumter, South Carolina, but I heard him speak uh, last weekend, as a matter of fact, and he said coaches, he was talking to a room full of football coaches at this point, plus me <laughs> as a basketball coach, so I want to hear Milt. And he said, look back at those great teams that you coached were they coach led or were they player led? And I, of course, it's player led. It's that, and you talk about it, culture as a as a cliche, but it's just the truth. Like the culture has to precede everything that you're doing. And, and again, what I'm sure what you're doing and what Herb McGee, McGee has done, and what tons of coaches are doing around the country, but just doing it the right way, knowing who they are, sticking to their guns, and saying this is how we do things here. Here are the expectations. Either can deal with it or not. <laughs> and uh, I just think it's I think it's so important. But take it away, Chris de Blasio. All right, coach. We like to end with a fun question here. If I ask a player that played for you on that that team that that beat Herb McGee's team, or I ask a player for the played for you, you know, last year or two seasons ago, if I said, "What's the one thing Coach Burke says over and over again?" What would be that thing? It could be a funny quip. It could be a teaching tool. Uh, maybe your wife even recognizes that you say it a lot when she comes to to watch. If she when she does. Wow, that's a that's a good one. Um, I say I, I I say relax a lot in different you know in different uh, in different contexts. Do you guys ever see Donnie Brasco where they say yes? What forget, forget about it? But it can it can mean all different things if it's said different ways. So I say relax a lot. Um, sometimes I say you know unrelaxed, and I say, relax, you know. But um, <laughs> so I say relax a lot, and I say some variation of uh, like losing our minds. So I say like, hey, don't lose your mind, or hey, you're losing your mind, or something to that effect. So um, I would say either relax or some variation of losing your mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. I still, I, I know. I, so, so I don't think we've had those, Brian. That- we have the most popular one I think through the podcast has been on the line. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We should have been keeping a list of that. That's what, you know what, Chris, with all your free time, uh, go back through all of our episodes. <laughs> yeah. I'll get on that. So, uh, maybe, we need an intern. Yeah. You know what? Maybe one of our listeners would be willing to do that for a t-shirt or something like that. You know? <laughs> uh, anyway, coach Burke, this has been awesome uh, to get to know you and man, Hate to hear y'all didn't get to play basketball last season. Wishing y'all, hopefully y'all get to play some basketball this season. Hopefully everybody gets to play some basketball. But it's been a lot of fun to have you on the show. Really appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. I had a lot of fun, guys. Thanks a lot. We'll we'll go ahead and wrap this one up for my co-host, Chris de Blasio. I am Brian Roosefield, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Games.